Welcome to Living with Climate Change. Uh, today's show is part two of the Guy McPherson uh, interview. Uh, I won't introduce him again on this show. Uh, please go to GuyMcPherson.com for uh, all the information about Dr. McPherson. Uh, so today is the second part uh, of the interview I had with him. Uh, please watch the first part. It was about all the scientific aspects of climate change and near-term extinction. Uh, today, we will be talking about the human aspects of climate change and climate trauma and the projections of climate change and especially near-term extinction. Um, we will, so we will talk about Dr. McPherson's uh, struggle with his conclusions and of, from all the evidence that he has gathered and how it has affected him and his life professionally and personally and he will tell a lot about his story which is an amazing story. Uh, we will also talk about on a larger level the society, uh, our civilization, how it is facing climate change and We'll also talk about the spirituality of, of facing our own death and it's relating to possible near-term near extinction. Um, and we'll talk about why the world is not uh, accepting uh, climate change or denial of climate change and, and all these aspects that uh, that are quite important in many people's lives and so that's what this show is going to focus on and I think it's very interesting and it is why I started my channel um, how we face climate change and how we live with climate change so let's get into uh, part two of the Dr. Guy McPherson interview on living with climate change all right, we're back for part two of uh, the show Living with Climate Change interview with Guy McPherson. Okay, now let's, let's kind of talk about the human aspects of this. And uh, I don't, you, you've already, I wanted to talk about your struggle. Um, you don't have to go too far into it. You've already kind of mentioned it, but like what happened to you at uh, your university uh, job and how did this affect you uh, uh, personally? And why do you think, uh, why can't people accept you're just, you're a scientist and you're giving them, you know, your, your evidence and things like that and uh you know i know what you mean uh, uh my little channel nobody none of my family or friends really want to have anything to do with it I, I just think it's an odd thing and so if you could comment on that sure um i was i was fairly radical as a professor uh, and radical means to get to the root of it has been co-opted in this country and throughout the world and come to mean something completely different. Radical, for most people, means extremist. 
but all it really means is to get to the root. That's why that that sign that mathematicians use. Right. <laughs> yeah. This I'm not sure if you can see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's called a radical. Yeah, yeah. That's called a radical because it gets to the root. Yeah. And so I was taking a fairly radical approach. I was practicing and demonstrating anarchism in my classroom, the ability that the the ability for students to learn for themselves, to take responsibility for themselves and also for the people sitting around them. So instead of focusing on the, the teacher, the sage on the stage approach, instead of focusing on the student, the student as customer approach, both of those are flawed. Instead, I insisted that we focus on the subject matter. So if the name of the course was, for example, fire ecology, we would spend all of our time focusing on fire ecology instead of focusing on our own ego or the ego of the people around us. And what that means is that we're not adhering to the patriarchal set of living arrangements that most of us grew up in. Students learning to think for themselves, to think critically, is really not what the system is designed to do. And you don't get much in the way of reward for practicing that approach. So um, I was not, to say I was not rewarded would be something of an understatement. I was a tenured full professor at a very young age and was among the most accomplished professors in the history of the institution. But I still was doing things the wrong way from the perspective of the administration. And so my life was made fairly uncomfortable. It didn't help that, and I didn't talk about this for a while because I couldn't find any strong evidence to indicate that it was true. But now I have it. I had a NSA contract at SPY following me around in 2005 on the university campus and tracking me there and there's little doubt that the that he and others within the security surveillance state were involved in making my life something less than pleasant in any event i voluntarily left active service at the university retained emeritus status so i would have access to the library and all those other good things that come with being associated with a major university and created an off-grid homestead in the wilds of southern new mexico and i lived there for seven a little over seven years full-time uh eight or nine years off and on as i was creating the homestead and ultimately left there to move to belize in and one of the reasons I established that homestead for my wife and I and the partners we were sharing the property with was because I could foresee, based on the evidence in 2007-2008, that we were in the midst of climate change, but I thought it would be survivable by humans if we secured our water and grew our own food and created a sense of human community that was viable and fun. So that was the goal. That didn't work. 
it all fell apart when I came across the notion of global dimming and the full impacts of global dimming or the aerosol masking effect. And also by the time I'd been there a few years, it became clear that taking such radical action largely outside of societal norms was setting oneself up for the most horrible loss of friendships, loss of relationships, defamation, libel, and slander. So that didn't turn out to be a hell of a lot of fun and cost me basically all the relationships in my wife, in my life. Sorry for the Freudian slip there. And so after being married for 32 years, 10 months and 17 days, and being in that relationship for more than 35 years, creating relationships on and beyond campus for many years, I left the homestead because once you realize the full impact of the aerosol masking effect, you realize that you might get a few weeks or maybe even a few months added to your life by living in that manner, but it became unpleasant for me to live that way. So I moved to Western Belize so that I could live differently, still largely differently than most Americans. And I moved back to New York State in October of last year, mid-October, for the same reason I moved to Belize, for the same reason I moved to the homestead in New Mexico, for the same reason I moved back to Tucson in 2000, for love, for love of a way of living, for love of the people around me. And so that's why I live here now and why I try to live here now in New York State is because of the love of the people in my life now. So it was uncomfortable and awkward. Sometimes it still is. I'm still subject to defamation. Uh, Davis Wallace, well, David Wallace Wells in his latest book, The Uninhabitable Earth, libels me, says horrible things about me. He does the same thing when he's conducting interviews. He's making a lot of money off his New York Times bestseller, and a lot of that money is coming as a result of defamation of me. So that's inconvenient, but there's nothing I can do about it. Having given up on the monetary system for a decade now, I don't have any money to pursue justice in the world. So I'm left to live here now. So that's what I'm trying to do with the occasional interruption for a conversation like this one. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, now, what did he say about you in his book? Uh, if you want to, I mean, he's a climate, well, I mean, his book is called The Uninhabitable Earth. Right. So yeah. I don't understand what, like, what his problem is with your... Well... It's interesting because he, he knows there's no money and certainly no fame in adhering to the short-term timeline that the evidence indicates. So instead, he adheres to the 2100 timeline of the IPCC that makes everybody feel happy. So he calls it the uninhabitable earth. He, he interviewed me and my partner for three or four hours when we were living in Belize, then wrote a paper for New York Magazine that became the most read paper article in the history of the magazine didn't quote me plagiarized me and didn't quote me but everybody knew it was me in fact michael mann wrote a hit piece on me a couple of weeks later that appeared in the washington post because he knew it was me being interviewed 
The fact that he didn't say my name didn't really hide much. So he's a plagiarist. He's done that repeatedly. And the things he says about me are just abjectly not true. Things like I was forced out of working at the university. I wasn't. I left voluntarily. And a long list of other things that I don't really want to get into because I'm working with an attorney who has agreed to come out of retirement and pursue justice in this case. And I'm not sure how much he wants me to talk about it. So suffice to say, if you read the book, apparently, and I haven't, but I've sent, I've been sent quotes from the book by various people calling themselves my friends. Apparently he does write some pretty nasty things about me. And as nearly as I can tell, none of them are true. So you can't do that and call yourself a journalist. And you can't do that. Yeah. You can't lie about people and expect to get away with it, or you'll just keep lying about people. And I realize that it's a lot of fun to lie about me because nobody wants to hear my message, including me. So if you can just point out that I'm a horrible person, then maybe you can push away the evidence I present. Now, didn't he, didn't he uh, write an article about the worst case scenarios of climate change? Yes, and, and I remember and I, I didn't think much of that. Yeah, that's that's the one that became the most read article in the history of the magazine. Yeah, well, that's too bad. Yeah, and and again, he says it's the worst case scenario, but he moves forward in time, having just had a baby, having just had his little baby girl. He has to say that it's twenty one hundred. It's not something him or his partner or his baby will have to deal with, even though he just talked to me for several hours and he knew better. He knows what the evidence is, but he knows the way to make money is to not present the evidence. The way to destroy your career is to say we're going extinct within the lifetimes of the people reading. And that sure doesn't help the cause of presenting the climate change to the public. It just makes that's People talk about it's all phony, hoax, and all, you know what I mean? Well, that's too bad to hear that. Absolutely. Well, and in fact, I have my first referee journal article coming out, my first peer-reviewed journal article in several years. And it's all about leading people with hope. And we, we know now, we know that hope, if people have hope, if they, if they think, if they have a belief in a positive future, which is what hope is, then they won't do anything. If you want to get people to do something, strike fear into their hearts. If you want to get people to do something, wield an ax over their head, you'll see, you'll see people moving then. If you tell them there's nothing to worry about, if you tell them there's no ax, if you tell them that life is good, if you take the Pollyanna approach, people are going to keep on destroying the earth like we're doing right now. Uh, okay, let I wanted to uh, introduce some of your books because um, that's kind of I think these books relate to what we're talking about. Uh, so let me uh, introduce your books, and it's on your website, guymcpherson.com. Uh, the these are just kind of the I think the major books you've written. You've written a lot of books, a lot of articles, uh, but. The first one is Walking Away from Empire, A Personal Journey, and that's 2011 you wrote that. And then I think uh, Going Dark, 2013. And then your newest book, Only Love Remains, Dancing at the Edge of Extinction. 
Is that this year you wrote that? Yes, it just came out in February of this year, in fact. Great. And those are all uh, republished on uh, Wood Thrush Productions. That's right. So, So the earlier books you mentioned, Walking Away from Empire and Going Dark, the publishers declared bankruptcy years ago. I never was paid a single royalty payment. So with with Thrush Productions has reissued those books. So they're called Revised Second Edition. And they got a little bit of a makeover, mostly with the cover and a, a few cosmetic changes like description of the author and and those kinds of things, a new foreword. But for the most part, going dark and walking away from Empire the content is unchanged and and it's and and I wanted to release them because you couldn't get them anymore. I I looked on Amazon for Going Dark recently. The only copy was for sale for 600 and some dollars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously that's ridiculous. It's a $15 <laughs> book. And so if I could reissue them and there was enough interest and in, people could get them for a nominal fee. And so that's great. And they're available, basically, Woodthrush worked through the Create Space on Amazon. And I know all the horrible things about Amazon, trust me. I know that what they do in terms of their unwillingness to pay taxes and the way they treat their workers and so on. But this Create Space actually allows some of the money go to go to the author, which is something new for me. And it also allows relatively rapid production or reissue of those previous books that were basically no longer available. So it turns out that even Amazon isn't all bad. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> and there's this peer-reviewed article that sounds interesting. Uh, it's called Becoming Hope Free, Parallels Between Death of Individuals and Extinction of homo sapiens yeah uh, and be so because do you want to oh go ahead sorry no no go ahead i'm sorry uh i was wondering if that sounds interesting and it's a, an article uh wondering if you could just can you uh, summarize that for us or, yeah or you know the editor came across my work and he asked me to write the paper and so I did, and we went back and forth, and it was reviewed by a peer reviewer, and so I incorporated those changes. It was accepted with these revisions, so I made the revisions back and forth a few more times. And the, the basic idea is this. In the medical community, medical ethicists and physicians agreed that in the 1960s and some through the 1970s, that it was perfectly okay to lie to patients. Think about that for a minute. It was perfectly okay to lie to the patients for the reason of giving them hope. They would tell the families, hey, your grandmother is going to die within six weeks, but let's not tell grandma because that would take away her hope. And so everybody thought this was a good idea at the time, or almost everybody thought it was a good idea. And then more recently, we've come to know that practice as malpractice that we've come to know lying to the patient as malpractice, as being an improper use of knowledge by physicians. And so now medical doctors don't lie to their patients anymore, but climate scientists do. Medical practitioners don't lie, don't lie just to give hope. 
but climate scientists and government entities and the media do it all the time. They tell people that we have until 2100 or some other date in the far future that is completely unsupported by evidence. And so I see a parallel here. I am hope-free. I see being hopeful and being hopeless as, to quote Stephen Jenkinson, two sides of the same con job. Instead, I have gotten rid of the belief in a favorable future, which is what hope is, and now I live as if I can't predict the future, but also that what, what I have in my life is here and now. You know, I could, an asteroid could hit me right now. Oops, it didn't. And in fact, that's one of my primary points. Any moment could be our last, as Homer pointed out in the Iliad some 2,800 years ago. But almost certainly any moment won't be our last. How do we live in light of that? For me, I live with urgency. But living with urgency is exhausting. So I can't really live with urgency all the time or it just wipes me out. So I'm trying to draw this balance that, that Buddhists are so famous for between living in the here and now and living with moderation so that in case any moment is not my last, I have had enough to eat and enough to drink that I can get to the next moment as well. That's what that article is about. And that's what my next book will be about, written with my partner, and it's called Planetary Hospice, a guidebook. All right. Sorry, that was a lot. Sort of all. No, not really. Uh, be here now. Yeah. So, um, and I know on your channel, uh, you you always say at the edge of extinction, only love remains. Right. And so I, I put out these. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I just saying, uh, what, what do you mean by that? I've, uh... Right. So. I have been putting out these edge of extinction clips for a long time, and there are over a hundred of them now on the Nature Bats Last YouTube channel. And I finished them with at the edge of extinction, only love remains. And that's because we are at the edge of extinction right now. We are bored, we're at that we're at that ledge. I would argue that we're we're Wiley Coyote right now. We've gone over the ledge. We're spinning our legs, and for the most part, we just haven't looked down. I've looked down. I know what's coming. My life will be abbreviated as a result of abrupt climate change. How much? I'm surprised I made it this long, to be honest. And will I make it another year? Another two years? Another five years? We'll see. But I don't assume that I will. And so I act with love. I live with urgency and I live with love. In, and, I, and I try to do this in every aspect of my life. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not successful, but what better to treat the people around me in my final days or weeks or months than with love? Is there a better way to live? I haven't found it if there is, and sometimes I go astray. So sometimes I want to beat people up for beating me up. And I get that that's not very loving of me, but that's the human side of this whole equation. Well, I think, yeah, that's kind of this, you've 
you've kind of created your own uh, spirituality or that I, I've been studying this for a long time. Uh, the ancient books, the Tao Te Ching and Bhagavad Gita. And I have a show uh, facing uh, climate change with spirituality. And they're calling it eco-spiritualism or whatever. But, uh, and I, I learned a lot from Eckhart Tolle. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, yes. But, and, you know, so I'm, there's similarities in all the religions and, and all Buddhism and Taoism and all of them. And, and that's what I'm hearing that it's that this knowledge of extinction has helped. It, it's like suffering that has helped uh, uh, cre- uh, uh, enhance your spiritual life more than it yes. was if it wasn't. Yes. And I, so I've done shows on this, if you want to watch them. I, but, um, and I mentioned in my shows that, in a way, this extinction and climate change we're facing is the same as, uh, as us facing our own death anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's an opportunity for, since the whole world made die at the same time you would think that this would bring people together and make people understand what's important and to enjoy every day and to to really appreciate nature and the way the world is now and i've tried to do that with in my shows and my channel and that's what i'm hearing you say and that's that's one reason i wanted to interview you because you always said that uh, at the edge of extinction only love remains and i knew there was some spiritual meaning that you had and i've watched you and i can see that uh that's a big part of, of who you are and it's something you don't see with other other communicators of climate change uh, i won't name their names but just the most popular guys you know they just are right. given, they're given data and what's going to happen. And uh, so I've noticed you're, you're a deep guy. And uh, that's one reason I wanted to have you on the show. And to be fair, I was the uber left brain scientist, just like those guys are, not very long ago. I would, when I started doing these presentations on abrupt climate change, I would present the facts. I was... I had the the bedside manner of a poor physician who came in, spent three minutes and 27 seconds telling the patient that they have a terminal condition, that they're going to die soon. And, oh, look at the time. I got to go play golf. Be sure to check in with the receptionist on the way out. Be sure to pay your bills. Uh, So I was relatively heartless. And then people pointed out that I was being not a very nice person and that you can't just come in and dump somebody with their terminal diagnosis and then just walk out the door without throwing a little bit of your heart into it, without showing them that you care. And I argued, well, a medical doctor doesn't have to play therapist to everybody. They're they're your medical doctor. If you want counseling, you go to somebody else. And so back and forth we went. And and so, yes, it's been quite a journey for me, lasting more than a decade now with more than a decade now with respect to abrupt climate change, increasingly abrupt, increasingly shortening the timeline in light of new evidence and trying to become a whole person myself. 
a whole holistic person who practices moderation and and those other Buddhist and Hindu inspired actions that make a person more than just a clinician, more than just a an uncaring evidence presenting scientist, but also a human being. And I don't think that's such a bad thing. And 10 or 15 years ago, I would have thought that was a bad thing. Well, 20 years ago, anyway. Well, I definitely think we need, uh, you know, more scientists that can uh, talk to the public about this in a, a bit different way. Um, you know, th that brings up an interesting point, and I interviewed Paul Ehrlich on my radio show, along with my co-host Kevin Hester, last month, or earlier this month. And Paul Ehrlich is a longtime writer and professor at Stanford University, frequently writes with his wife, Anne Ehrlich, and he wrote The Population Bomb in 1968. Yeah. He, was, he was a correspondent. He was an environmental correspondent for NBC Nightly News. Not that long ago, in the early 1970s, here was, here was a, a, a major media outlet that had a scientist on a couple of days a week to present the evidence about the environment. Nobody does that anymore. The closest thing we have in this country to a scientist who tries to give information to the public is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who works for the Museum of Natural History and who clearly has been influenced by Monsanto yes. in promoting GMO food and pointing out that climate change isn't that bad, that it's gradual and linear and we can fix it and blah, blah, blah. We just don't have the culture anymore that encourages scientists to present their information in a way that people can understand. And that, that alone has been very problematic for me. It's a trend that I've seen over the course of the last 50 years, and it's maddening. And, and I don't see any way around it at this point. We're just too far down the track. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, what do you think of this new uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Uh, I've been a long-time pra practitioner of anarchism. I haven't voted for a really, really long time in a presidential election, and I'm not going to get caught up in this ver this year's version of the show either, or next year, or whenever that election thing goes on. You know... Well, she's it, promoted the Green New Deal, and, you know, and then was attacked, obviously, by about it. Course. So. Of course. You know, I just don't. First, you know, it's just the first thing we've heard of since the Trump administration about anything about you know doing anything about climate change. So right, right, and, and she talks about the world coming to an end in 2030, right? Parroting the yeah. IPCC's report and so on. And it's you know it's great that somebody's actually bringing attention to something that matters, like the way we live. But I just don't follow politics closely enough because I just I don't see large entities like governments doing anything on the behalf of people like you and I. And that's one of the reasons I was happy to escape this country 
for a relatively short period of time. And I suspect that's had some influence over why you're living where you live too. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. Um, okay. Uh, I just had some questions here. Uh, kind of like thought I might ask you. Um, Do you uh, ever feel torn between uh, uh, continuing talking about climate change and coming on my show and things like that, uh, or just kind of trying to forget it and, you know, live your life and, and not really be an activist and explain sure. that you, with your belief of just there's no hope and uh, just to not even mess with it or... So what what keeps you going? Uh, keeps you wanting to talk about it? As I've said repeatedly, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. That's probably the primary reason I keep doing it, is I'm not smart enough to stop. Uh, another reason is that I'm a teacher. It's not it's not just what I do. It's who I am. This I've been a teacher for as long as I can remember. And I still have this knowledge that I want people to come to grips with. I feel as if I'm one of the very few people who are reasonably knowledgeable, reasonably accessible to the public, who can present the terminal diagnosis in a manner that is truthful, that is honest, that is genuine, that that maybe it softens the blow a little bit and encourages people to act radically, to act authentically. And so that's what keeps me going. And then I get involved in a five-week tour on the Pacific Coast, which is coming up, and I realize what a pain the whole thing is and I just want to throw in the towel because so many things I'd rather do than sit here at my keyboard all damn day interacting with people who want me to say one thing which is the opposite of the actual truth and so it's a mix it's an uncomfortable mix of working with people who don't want to hear what I have to say which is everybody including me and feeling an obligation to get this message out there. On the plus side, <laughs> and of course, there's always a plus side to human extinction. On the plus side, I won't be talking about it much longer because we're running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. Well, that's right. And so, you know, that's, that's the balance of trying to live with urgency and not burn myself out. But... Would I love to spend more time with the people I love? Would I love to spend more time hiking in the woods than going on tour and thoroughly exhausting myself, explaining to people who don't want to know, who want to push back? Of course, I'd rather walk in the woods than do almost anything. I'd rather walk in the woods with five or six interested, interesting people than almost anything. And I'm torn because I think my message matters. Yeah, I thought that you might be. That's why I asked you the question. Yeah. Uh, it seems like it would... I mean, I am too, in a way. I tried to forget about 
climate change and and uh, because uh, I mean for one thing uh, I couldn't really get a job with an environmental science degree a master's degree even that and uh, in America especially and I tried to just kind of forget it but I just I can't seem to forget it right. it's something I think about all every day every it's a part of me and I, I that's why I just started this channel and just to I just needed to talk to other people about it and I think once you become uh, you get the that you understand it you don't there's no going back maybe it, it's like what Erin Dottie Roy said on page seven of her 2001 book power politics once you see it you can't unsee it and for some of us we've seen it we can't unsee it so you do the work and I appreciate it of starting this channel to try to get the word out about abrupt climate change and what it means. How do we live with it? So I applaud you for that effort. Some people apparently can see it and then look away and never think it about again. I I don't know how that happens. Yeah, I don't either. I talked about it on a show of mine. Uh, you know, I just think that, uh, I mean, I think they just, I, I don't know, maybe it's, I was thinking about this, that it might be like global dimming with people that, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, by yeah. the major climate scientists and they, this global dimming thing is there and they don't, they ignore it. And well, I think uh, they maybe don't understand it enough and they ignore it and they just kind of, they don't want to go there. And I maybe we, think that everybody in the world is maybe like that. They don't want to real. They don't want to understand climate change. I think I said that about our president Trump. I don't think that he. I don't think he wants to understand it. He just he won't acknowledge it, and he don't want to understand it. Well, as you know, as we are president. a very solution-oriented culture. If you're not part of the if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. How many times have we heard that? We yeah. are a very solution-oriented culture. If there is no solution, where does that leave us? For most people who are promoting actions to try to fix something, if they are forced to admit that there is no solution, that reducing carbon emissions also comes with reducing the aerosol masking effect, that's a non-solution. Nobody wants to talk about non-solutions. That makes you the bad person. Nobody wants to be the bad person, certainly not on television. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't... Except me, apparently. Apparently, I want to be the bad person. Here I am. <laughs> well, I've mentioned it in my show that I don't know how much longer people can ignore these ecological problems. I mean, how long can it go on? The population is increasing. It, it's the extreme weather events, uh, you know, the migrations and, and refugee, climate refugees. Uh, I just don't think it can last uh, much longer. But it may be so if it's slow, 
it may just be people continually say that there is no problem. It's just, I don't know. I mean, right. it's, unless there's a, an abrupt, something happens that is so bad that there's absolutely no way to ignore it, um, which may be abrupt climate change, which may happen if, you, if you're saying, if you're believing that it's extinction in 2026, then I'm sure you're, you're wait, you're ready within the next few years, you probably believe that something will happen that will wake people up or do you not think that it will? I mean, sure. Well, I, you know, I think a blue ocean event in the Arctic ocean will be a real wake up call that hasn't happened with homo sapiens on the planet before. If it's reported, it will be a real wake up call. And shortly after that, we lose habitat for humans. So maybe the wake up call comes a little late. And that's the problem with all of these wake up calls is that I, I fear that they will happen. Like you're driving down the road and you look over there and you hear the thump thump and you look in the rearview mirror and there's the dead dog in the road. That's when you get the news that you just killed the dog is after it happened. So I suspect that's when most people are going to get the word about abrupt climate change, destroying habitat for humans is after the habitat is already destroyed. And then we might have a matter of days or months remaining. What then? How do you live with what now is a terminal diagnosis that nobody can deny? I don't know. And I don't know when we're there. You know, one of the things I used to say on tour a lot to remind people that their lives are short is that birth is birth is a terminal condition. Birth, no, birth is a sexually transmitted disease that is proven lethal in every case. I'm trying to get people to live with urgency because birth is lethal. Sure. And we just don't know. The, the problem is we don't know how long we have. If we had an expiration date stamped on our heel, like on the cans in the grocery store, this whole thing would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? We'd know that it was, you know, February 27th, 2000 and what year are we? 2021. If I knew that was my expiration date, then I'd live very differently than I'm living right now, I'm sure. But we don't know. Do you, do you think a lot of people, maybe maybe they know what is going on with climate change and they, they realize there's nothing that can be done and then they, and they just continue on with their lives? Of course. I mean, there may be more. That might be the majority of people. Of course. And it's just Absolutely. Like they, they don't need us to tell them about it. They know it's bad. And You know, let's consider the real... Let's consider the really wealthy people, what we sometimes call the 1% or whatever. You think those people don't know? These are people who made their money because they have access to information. You think Bill Gates doesn't know what I know about abrupt climate change? You think Warren Buffett doesn't know what I know about abrupt climate change? Of course they do. In fact, it was, I gave my first public presentation that was posted on YouTube about abrupt climate change and where it leads, human extinction. I did that, then it was posted on YouTube in November of 2012. In December of 2012, Steve Wozniak already was familiar with my message and he sent me an email message. 
And he said he was going to move to the Southern Hemisphere as a result of the information I was presenting. No thank you, by the way. Just I'm moving now. And so he knows. And, you know, that's a, on, on the planetary stage, this is a relatively minor player, according to Wikipedia. And I'm not sure it's a reliable source on this topic or many others for that matter. But he's only worth $100 million. He's not a big player like Jeff Bezos is or like... Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or a handful of other people, right? But still he knows. Why does he why does he know? Why does he have the information a month after I present it? Because that's how he became somebody with a lot of money, is by accessing knowledge that is readily available. So people know. There's no doubt in my mind that people know. Lots of people know. And they're just living large. They're living in similar to the way I'm living, but with a lot more money at their disposal. So that they're doing what they want to do. I have no doubt about that. I think maybe some people just, uh, they believe this is the natural progression of humans and there's no point of, uh, uh, no point of stopping it. it. I almost think that Trump believes that in a way, in a way, I think Trump knows it, and he just, you know, they're just like, uh, this is the way humans are, and this is what we live for the moment, and if we go extinct, we go extinct, but this is our nature. You know, and that could very that's, well be. That's, that's our human nature, and that's all there is to it. And you I know, think it's funny. I watched that movie First Man, uh, that that documentary, you know, and and they, it's kind of you can see it in all those our ancestors. They just, you know, they were in a safe. They were living in the trees and safe, and they left. They chanced it and went on, and you know they're always pushing, pushing the envelope. <laughs> So right. maybe is our net that's maybe we're supposed to go extinct. And that's almost a Buddhist Eastern type philosophy of non-interference. Just let right. it go. Yeah. I, I see that here in Southeast Asia. They just they they don't they don't have that mindset we do in the in the West. Um you know, you, you're probably onto something there. There's a bunch of people who just accept that this is the way we are, that all humans we have ever known are exhibiting these behaviors. And so, of, of course, this is going to lead to an undesirable outcome. Sure. 